0: This is the California Liberty
1: Project podcast. So, welcome back to the California Liberty Project. Once again, my name is Greg, and as usual, I appreciate all of you for downloading, for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. And of course, follow us on Instagram at California Liberty Project, as well as Twitter and whatnot. And check out our brand new Rumble and YouTube channels. They're still new, maybe not brand new, but they're new. So um, if you can, give us a review. Make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and all of that. It really helps. Um, So we've had a very interesting past few weeks, as we almost always do, in the... National media and in the California state media, but nationally there have, of course, been some really crazy stories, some stories that everyone's been talking about, and uh, yes, we here at California Liberty Project are dominantly a California-focused podcast, but from time to time, it is fun to look at some of the national headlines and comment on those. In just a few minutes, we are going to be joined by some great California guests Um, Corinne and Courtney from Take a Stand, Stanislaus, and we will be chatting with them shortly, just in a few minutes here. But nationally, some of these insane stories and some of these almost clown show stories, some of them sideshows, some of them propaganda, some of them very important, you know, all of these stories have been coming at us and everyone's been talking about those, so I can't resist here. The Chinese spy balloon, uh, Spygate, Balloon Gate, uh, whatever you want to call it. I guess it wouldn't be Spygate. It's really Balloon Gate or Clown Gate. This story has really captivated everyone's imagination. And, you know, obviously it was this spy balloon, you know, that was allegedly Chinese in origin, was picked up in the Western United States, supposedly over Montana or even before then. Um, it's not clear to me when they first started tracking it. Biden, of course, in, in their incompetence, weakness, whatever it was, he's asleep at the wheel. They let the thing drift over several states, all the way over, eventually, to the Carolinas. Um, and there's this big national outcry, oh, you're not doing anything, Biden, you're weak, you're feckless, you're incompetent, which, of course, he is all of those things. So in classic Biden administration fashion, they go too little, too late, and then they go to the opposite extreme. And they completely overcompensate and blast the thing out of the sky with uh, some kind of advanced missile technology. (laughs) You know, it's almost like he could have been using a nuclear bomb to blast this thing out of the sky just to prove how competent and alert and tough he is. Because he had taken a few days of really bad press, I think rightfully so. People are kind of wondering what these balloons are. What is this all about? Are they really Chinese? Is this some kind of weird false flag? People don't know to, what to make of it. And the Biden administration is caught flat-footed, asleep at the wheel. And then, as I said, they overcompensate, as they almost always do on these things. And uh, they end up looking like either criminals, clowns, incompetence, or all the above. And you know, another classic example of this was after the the failed withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I thought, I think, most of the country thinks that it was a very good idea to withdraw our troops and to get out of Afghanistan after 20 years but it was a botched withdrawal and you remember um you know there was tragically 13 american marines and service uh, servicemen service women who were were killed um in uprisings and violence in the ensuing days and then of course There was that massive missile strike, which allegedly was taking out terrorists in Kabul or somewhere around there. And it turned out to be an extended family of like 10 people, innocent, completely innocent as far as I know. And a bunch of children were killed in that strike because Biden didn't want to appear feckless, incompetent and weak. And so uh, they murdered 10 or even 11 uh, citizens there, civilians in Afghanistan. So luckily, no one was was taken out, no one was murdered by Biden's government, by Biden's administration with this Chinese spy balloon disaster, but it was a bit of a clown show. What was it actually? It's not totally clear. It does appear that the balloon was actually Chinese. Um, you know, maybe the Chinese are sending sending these balloons over, kind of probing, finding out what the U.S. response would be. Clearly, the thing was not armed. Um Uh, Apparently, they could get a lot of the same surveillance and intelligence from their satellites. I know there was a big risk, there was a big worry that people are thinking this could be uh, testing out some kind of delivery system for an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, uh, which would obviously cripple any electronic circuits, all electronic circuits within line of sight. So if this balloon was at high altitude, high elevation, that would pose a big risk to the American homeland. It's just really not clear, but what we do know is that the people who are in charge, your rulers, my rulers in Washington, D.C., the people who want to run every aspect of our lives, they are not competent. You should be scared. These people are buffoons. They are dangerously incompetent, and we see examples of this all the time. Even to the extent that we are seriously having a lot of conservatives, a lot of people, independents, a lot of non-political people, even some liberals talking about UFOs this past week. So after the clown show of the balloon thing a couple weeks ago, we all watched as more and more mysterious, quote, unidentified flying objects started appearing everywhere. And I'm thinking like, wait, 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 wait. All of a sudden now, You know, after Biden's week and he overcompensates and he's, you know, he does the whole thing, shooting the balloon out of the sky. And now all of a sudden we have three or four additional unidentified flying objects. No one can tell us what they are. Um, All of these different national security bureaucrats and suits come out in in various press conferences. And they're telling us this and they're telling us that. Uh, We're not totally sure what they are. And we're supposed to believe this? It's just a coincidence that all of a sudden three or four additional unidentified flying bodies or objects have appeared? I don't believe any of it. The whole thing is about control of the narrative. It's about public relations. They're trying to still put a nice, neat, tidy little bow on the PR disaster from the week before. And then I think, I suspect that they even planted the UFO thing. They put that into the discussion, which is idiotic. These are not alien invasions. These are not alien craft. Some of these things could have been U.S. government crafts or American weather balloons, hobby balloons. We just don't know. One thing we do know is that anything you're hearing in the media itself is a lie. They're always flat-footed, the media. They always give you the partial story. Most of the mainstream media, so-called mainstream media, are just recording the regime's talking points. So anytime you hear anything this bizarre or such a strange fragment of a story, whether it's a Chinese spy balloon or an unidentified flying object, which is so stupid, this is not aliens. Anytime you hear discussion of that for two, three, four days in the media cycle, in the news cycle, question it because you're not getting the truth we're probably not even getting 20% of what's actually going on. We don't know where these unidentified flying objects or flying bodies came from. We don't know who's launching them. It wouldn't surprise me if the U.S. government is launching them just so then they can shoot those out of the sky too. You notice as well that where they were shot down were these like Arctic places in the Yukon over Canada, snowy mountaintops where we don't even know if we can recover the craft. Or one was in Lake Huron, right? Right. Um, I think that, that's near Michigan or borders Michigan in the Great Lakes. Oh, and it we can't recover it immediately because, you know, it sank to the bottom of Lake Huron. It, it's just unbelievable. And they think that we're so stupid, we're going to be distracted by all this. It is a distraction. And yes, we're talking about it. But the key thing is, all of you out there, and I got to remind myself too, don't believe it for one minute. It's all lies. It's all half-truths. And a lot of it is propaganda and PR for the incompetent federal government and federal bureaucracy. So the other thing that was really interesting came out, um, this came out like I believe just over a week and a half ago, was the resurfacing of this Nord Stream pipelines. There's more than one. But how the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up. Someone sabotaged them. And of course, Seymour Hirsch, this old school um, this old school journalist had, had come out with this story on Substack um, with, you know, I think at least one um, anonymous source or whatever. But very credible, um, makes a lot of sense, would explain a lot of what could have happened with the Nord Stream Pipeline's sabotage story. And that's really damaging to this regime because they had been out there, as you recall, and you've seen these clips. But people in the Biden administration had been had been caught well ahead of time, well ahead of the Ukraine-Russia war. They were coming out in the media, granting these tough guy, puff peace interviews, saying, yeah, if something happens, if, if Putin invades, then that uh, Nord Stream pipeline or those Nord Stream pipelines, plural, are not long for this world. We'll, we'll take care of them. These idiots are so stupid. They were announcing it, you know, more than a month or two ahead of the actual Russian invasion. And then, of course, just months ago, the Nord Stream pipelines are blown up. They're sabotaged off the coast of Denmark. And lo and behold, we just can't figure it out. It must have It's Russia, right? It's for sure Russia because there's such a motive there for Russia to blow up their own economic lifeline, their own pipelines, their own um, influence over all of Europe and the NATO discussion. I'm sure it was Vladimir Putin. We're just supposed to believe that coming from the mainstream media. It's embarrassing, man. What they put out is an embarrassment. Don't believe any of it. It's all propaganda. I'm not saying I know 100% that it was the United States government or military that was responsible for for this, but it makes the most sense. We have the means. It's an advanced operation. We were there conducting military uh, or naval exercises right before this happened. Um, It could have been remote detonated. There are only so many people who could get down, you know, two, three hundred feet below the water and actually set this up and pull it off. It doesn't surprise me. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence there. So that had been going on. And then we all get captivated and distracted by UFO talk and Chinese spy balloons. And lo and behold, the Seymour Hersh story, the Nord Stream Pipelines sabotage story is kind of buried And we're not talking about it as much. And it'll go away after a few more news cycles, won't it? We're not going to remember it. But what actually happened, if the United States government did blow up those pipelines, detonate them remotely, that is essentially an act of war, which is very, very dangerous. Because I don't want the United States being involved in a war with Russia. Certainly not for Ukraine, not for any reason. It's dangerous. I don't want our young servicemen, servicewomen... I don't want any of them being sent over there. And I'm concerned about this. And I don't like what my government is doing. Lying to us, um, gaslighting us, and trying to distract us with other idiotic stories. UFOs. Give me a break. Give me a break. And then, of course, we've got this major story, which is being suppressed largely by, again, mainstream media. But the big train derailment and toxic waste disaster that's happening... In Eastern Ohio, in East Palestine, Ohio, that is really, really scary. These are 5,000 residents in Trump country, in JD Vance country. These are mostly MAGA-supporting, um, near Appalachian folks um, in a very small town. Many of them, you know, are not wealthy by any stretch. This is working-class America. These are classic. Trump voters, I think by a three to one margin, and they're being ignored as their town has been fouled and polluted and and possibly destroyed by toxic waste, essentially. This vinyl chloride and even phosgene gas, all these byproducts that came from the decision to blow up or to essentially incinerate the chemicals that were on the ground. Now, of course, that decision was made by federal bureaucrats and state bureaucrats, It wasn't put to a town council vote. It wasn't democracy for the people of East Palestine, Ohio, who right now are essentially being ignored by FEMA, by the federal Leviathan in terms of disaster relief. You would think that if we're going to have this massive, gigantic Leviathan state, that occasionally when there is a terrible accident or a huge act of God, an act of nature, something that really just... You know, innocent people are victimized, and innocent people are hurting. You would think, in that case, we could actually, we could actually have a government that might send them uh, relief checks. Not that I support a massive welfare state; I don't. But if we're going to have it, isn't this the reason? Isn't this the scenario, as far as why we have this gigantic leviathan state, the total state? The answer is yes. But the problem is, these aren't the right victims in East Palestine, Ohio. As I said, these are working class, dominantly Trump voters. Maggots is what they're referred to by the so-called elite in the New York, Washington, LA media. And these people are going to be ignored. Now, there's going to be enough of a public outcry, I think, um, over the coming days. It's not going to surprise me that, you know, next week, maybe Biden or, or Kamala Harris will actually go and visit these people. But it's going to be after they've been ignored for two weeks and after the government participated in fouling and polluting their town with poison gas. And who knows what kind of poison byproducts are seeping down into their creeks and into their water supply. I would not drink that water. That stuff is seriously carcinogenic, that vinyl chloride and a lot of those other chemicals. No way. I I mean, I would be very worried for the folks of... East Palestine, Ohio. And then you have the news of at least one journalist who was detained in the early days of this thing. Very little has come out on that. That's disturbing right there. And then I was reading through even on Apple News, um, the Apple News summaries. They're saying, yeah, this this is partly fake news. Then you read through it and it's like, well, it was only one journalist who was detained. And they were later released. So they were arrested, but they were released. That's not fake news. That actually happened. And it could have been more than one. They're at least admitting that there was one journalist who was trying to take pictures or document this in the early days of this um, train derailment. And so, yes, that person was arrested. There could have been more than that. But why is it being suppressed? Why is it so hush-hush? Again, the Biden administration being caught flat-footed and incompetent and asleep at the wheel. And I'm not saying this was Joe Biden's fault. I'm not making it a partisan issue to that extent. But nonetheless, what are they doing? If this happened in, in certain other cities or counties in America, we know there would be a very different response. Like if this happened in the suburbs of Northern Virginia or the suburbs of Boston or certain other places throughout the country, we, we can almost be guaranteed that there would be a very different response. But no, this happened in, in an area that's near Appalachia they're not especially wealthy. They're just a bunch of Trump voters and deplorables. And okay, so they'll be, the government will be there maybe in two weeks, maybe in three weeks. Go back to your homes, drink the water, it's fine. We went out there with a little testing meter, the EPA did, and the air's fine. That attitude is it's vile, it's disgusting that these people are being ignored by, quote, their government that's supposed to be looking out for them. So I'd say defund the EPA, abolish the EPA, it's worthless. Half the time, they're the ones causing these mining disasters or industrial accidents. So the EPA does nothing for you. Most of the time, they just victimize businesses and make it impossible to employ people and to engage in industrial activities. So yeah, I find this very troubling. And then we have to deal with. We actually look at stories that really do matter across, and of course, East Palestine really does matter. But we look at other stories that are really disturbing and that, that are impacting people around the country, and we're looking at the mRNA vaccines that were added to the childhood schedule of recommended vaccines, starting at six months of age. And this, this happened, uh, the, the CDC did this. So people are saying, okay, well, this is really not good. We agree, Greg, we don't like this, but it's more of a state-by-state thing. Well, the problem is, is when the CDC does this, according to my understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, shoot me an email, but let me know if I'm wrong. I believe it was according to the PrEP Act or some of these other federal um, inoculation and vaccine acts that immunity can be extended as long as there are certain, I don't want to call them mandates, but in this case, Some of these vaccines, if they're officially on the childhood schedule of recommended vaccines, then suing these companies, such as a Pfizer or a Moderna, it's nearly impossible, essentially. They might actually get legal immunity. And I need to look more into that. Um, Again, shoot me an email. Let me know if you have special knowledge on that. But there are a lot of reasons why this is dangerous. And then, of course, we're, we're looking at dealing with these kinds of issues with the vaccines appearing on statewide um schedules too and that's disturbing and of course in california we're beginning to see a lot of the bad bills for 2023 a lot of people have been doing great work on ab659 and in a couple minutes i'll talk to corinne and courtney about this and a few other bills but ab659 is worrisome they're going to try to force the gardasil hpv vaccine on all of California's school children in private or public schools starting in grade 7, I believe. Um, Again, like 12 years of age. And that is very disturbing. And that's something we're not going to stand for. The answer is no. My answer is no. For my wife and me, for our family, the answer is no on that. There are other bills, too, that are crazy that are coming out we're going to focus on, we'll talk about in the coming months. But one of them that I just became aware of is Senate Bill 541. Have you guys seen this? SB 541. Start posting on this. Start looking at this. Um, put it on your social media if you can. Let's, let's get this, this one uh, circulating. So Senate Bill 541 does a lot of things. One of the disturbing things it does is it makes free condoms available in schools throughout California for children as young as 7th grade. So starting in 7th grade, there'll be a bowl full of condoms or some condom dispenser in a bathroom. I'm not sure how they're going to do it, but it'll be free, and it's there by law in every public school, and I'm not sure, maybe even private school. The other part of this dangerous bill, SB 541, as I read it, is that private businesses, whether it's a CVS or some other local mom-and-pop drugstore or pharmacy, they cannot have age restrictions on non-prescription Um, contraceptives like such as condoms and so you know again even if there were a family-run pharmacy in a small town or even in a big town anywhere in the state of california those people can't have their own private objection and they can't put an age restriction on buying condoms or contraceptives and there's a lot more dangerous stuff in sb 541 this is a bill that has to be defeated so let's find out more let's get the conversation going with sb 541 as well as AB-659 and a bunch of other bad bills. we got to be engaged. we got to get active. Um, One more thing, and then we'll get to Corinne and Courtney. Um, Speaking of getting engaged and getting active and having a media blackout, the media ignoring a story, in the coming days, I think on the 18th, I mean, it's going to be just this weekend here as we speak, there's a Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C., which is the left, the right, libertarians coming together to basically speak out against the war in Ukraine and Russia and, and the war machine in general. And I think it's a, it's a great thing to do to unite people to say, no, we have to fix America first. We're not going to war for Ukraine. How about they just be satisfied with a hundred billion American taxpayer dollars? We are not going. We're not sending our, our sons or daughters to war in Ukraine or anywhere else. We fight wars for self-defense. That's what we do constitutionally in our country. And so Rage Against the War Machine that's happening this weekend is being, as far as I know, completely ignored. So let that be a, a shocker to you. I'm sure you're not exactly surprised. But at any rate, let's continue the discussion about activism and fighting the bad bills And other things here in California. Let's get right to Corinne and Courtney from Take a Stand Stanislaus. We're back this week with a great episode. We have two great guests that I'm I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with both Courtney and Corinne from Take a Stand Stanislaus, which hopefully a lot of you are familiar with their work, Um, not only in the Central Valley but kind of throughout the state. um, They've really gotten involved. They're into a lot of the grassroots activism. And from what I can see, it appears to be uh, medical freedom and family choice. And I think they're doing great work. They're yet another example. You know, we're all foot soldiers in this battle for liberty and just battle for family sovereignty. And uh, so I want to welcome both Corinne and Courtney to the California Liberty Project podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thank you for being here today. So would each of you take just a minute or a couple of minutes or five minutes and just introduce yourselves if you if you would and um, just let us know how did you get into this activism and, and into the fight?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Corinne. I'm one of the co-founders of Take a Stand Stanislaus. Um In general, a little bit about me, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, and I'm also a registered nurse. So advocating um, in general is something that kind of comes natural to me. Um, It's how I protect my family, my relationships, and I I do my job. Um, And I think really what got me started in paying better attention and becoming activated in my community is when I had kids. Um, A lot of us have felt... That pendulum swinging back and forth, and the effects of our legislators making laws that impact us. Um, but when we had kids, it, it kind of brought us to a different aspect of feeling that pendulum swing and, and activating us into doing something to protect our children. Um, and I think that's kind of what brought most of us together is our is our kids.
0: Yeah. Um, my name is Courtney. I'm a wife. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a freedom fighter. Um, We are here in Stanislaus County, of course. I actually met Corinne and some of the other moms from our group at the Board of Supervisors meetings. And that's how we got connected and started to form this group. And this is our, at least my second year of legislation going into this. So still kind of new and still trying to learn everything, but ready to fight by any means necessary.
1: Yeah, well, we've got a fight on our hands. Uh, Metaphorical fight, absolutely. And it's been really interesting too, because I think so many of us really got involved or kind of reignited our involvement in the movement for liberty, and even um, even without highfalutin talk about the liberty, just just trying to achieve family sovereignty again. Right? We got we got really brought back into it with all the COVID tyranny and authoritarianism and all the insanity that happened. I mean, just continual um, insane policies, right? We've seen the importance of grassroots activism, getting involved locally, of course, not only at our kids' schools, but people are going to town hall meetings, county board of supervisors meetings, and then a lot of groups, too, have been really getting mobilized and activated and even going up to Sacramento and getting involved with meeting with legislators. Um, I know some of the groups I've been involved with and my wife, you know, we've met with legislators and done like town hall meetings and such. And so I see that your group is doing that as well. Tell me about how you got involved with actually reaching out to legislators. And um, what have you been doing in the Capitol when you go up to Sacramento?
2: Yeah, well, so for me, um, being in healthcare, I was actually mandated um, to get the shot or basically have to explain my religion. Um, So obviously, I'm not comfortable with that, first of all. Um, I knew the mandate was coming down from the state level. Um, I also realized that the state is very complex and I can't just show up up in Sacramento and expect someone to listen. Um, so I had started organizing with other healthcare members and um, basically at my hospital and then in Stanislaus County and said, you know, I, th- I think we really need to get in front of our county board of supervisors and ask if one, we can be connected with the people who are making and supporting these policies. And then, um, it just kind of took off from there. So that was 2020. Um, we in less than a week had organized, a uh, board of supervisors. Um, well, we didn't have it on the agenda, but we did, we did go up and take over a public comment. Um, we organized hundreds of healthcare workers and community members going to the board of supervisors meeting and just, um, had them hear what their community was experiencing with these these mandates coming our way, and we um, asked for a couple action items at that Board of Supervisors meeting. We asked that the county create a group of citizens that are affected by these mandates and help connect us with our local legislators. Um, our County Board of Supervisors was fairly receptive to us, and they did help us coordinate a Zoom meeting with a group of us healthcare professionals and our assembly members and senators. Um, So we met with within that first month of trying to engage with our local officials, we had a Zoom meeting with assembly member Flora Gray and senators Eggman, Caballero, and um, also Borges. And so that's kind of where it started for us. We knew that um, we wanted to remain nonpartisan because the issues that we were facing were bigger than party lines. Um, and we knew we were, the only way we were really going to be able to even hold any ground against this system was the grassroots way, really getting the people in the community engaged and informed and empowered. Um, I think one of our biggest things is providing resources for people to em- empower people. Um, and so the one thing that all of these crazy mandates have really brought forward is it's compromising people's values. Um, and really, I think that's what brings us together. Our values are compromised yeah. in our county. Um, and that's really what's bringing us together and helping us organize to try to protect mm-hmm. those values. Um, and then as far as like the state, we we just, just got into engaging at a state level last year. It was literally our first legislative session and we just jumped in headfirst. Um, SB 866, which was the minor consent bill, and SB 871, which would add the shot to the childhood requirements for school, is a hard line for a lot of parents in California and guardians in California. Yeah. And that's really what got us organized. And luckily, where we live at compared to Sacramento, we're an hour and 20 minutes out. So we really have an advantage. And we um, take our location, we're very proud of where we live at. And so we're, we're very proud to utilize how close we live to Sacramento to kind of build relationships with these legislators. Um, it is very complex up in Sacramento. And to be quite honest, not something yeah. that we can, um, battle alone. So we hyper-focus locally. We do sure. we do what we can locally, but then engaging people at a local level that when it's time to go to Sacramento, they're ready.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And just so people who might not know, so Stanislaus County, would that be um, essentially Modesto and surrounding areas? Yes. Yep. Pretty much? Okay. And then I guess Stockton is a different county, I believe. Is that San Joaquin? Yep.
2: But that's our neighbor, basically. San Joaquin County on one side and Merced County on the other.
1: Right. 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 Okay. Cool. I just want to make sure I had kind of the geography kind of down. And I guess that area, Stanislaus County is generally pretty conservative, right? Much more conservative than Sacramento County to the north.
2: It definitely is. I think that's an advantage we have here. But also I like to um, give our community credit for stepping up and electing conservative candidates. So it's not just by chance. Our community is very engaged um, and they take their values very seriously but yeah we do tend to have more conservative ears that listen
1: yeah and you mentioned that it's nonpartisan too which i think should be a key thing that should give us a little bit of hope um I think there have been so many there have been so many bad um, takes you know and bad positions coming from the left however a lot of i, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the true left really is, is recognizing that this is a liberty issue and they need to get involved um, for essentially kind of constitutional rights or just basic rights to control your own body, right? I, I think that's a good thing. That's, that I see as a positive mm-hmm. when we can actually um, lock arms with some of the people who are on the left and are kind of waking up to the insanity. And, and then conversely, there have been so many awful Republicans on this, the biomedical fascism, the tyranny so many of them don't even want to touch this topic. They want to stay away from it. Like it's a third rail. They don't want to touch it. And I think that's that's kind of gutless as well. So it's really nice when there can be a coalition reaching across the aisle.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're so proud to be nonpartisan. We've really connected this last year with so many elected officials throughout California, um, just in the opposition of SB 866. We met with over you know, I think 13 representatives offices. And um, although we, you know, think Republicans in general will tend to vote more with us, um, we're kind of faced with a time where we don't just need them to vote with us, we need them to be assertive with the bills that they're putting forward and assertive with their opposition to these bad bills. Because the reality is, is most of the bills coming out of California are not great bills for the um, general constituents of California—it's not what we want. But um, the people who actually show up and vote kind of get most of the say. And I think historically, not a ton of conservatives actually show up to vote. So it's important that we we do show up.
1: Yeah, and a lot of libertarians have been really good on this too. Unfortunately, there just aren't a lot of you know there aren't huge numbers um, in libertarian party, certainly in the Mises Caucus, which I think is the best of the libertarian party. Um, but yeah, I, personally, I'd be happy if people go up to Sacramento and then they just do nothing but gum up the works. I'd like to see zero laws coming out for a legislative session. That would be my ideal session, a do-nothing legislature.
2: It'd be a lot easier, Courtney, too, because <laughs> she's the really the one who tackles a lot of these bills and goes through almost every single one yeah, of them. So I we would love a session of no bad bills.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or no bills at there all. There would be I'd no be like, bills you know, at all
2: if we did no bad bills. Right. <laughs>
1: It's not like we don't have enough laws, right? We've got plenty of laws. I think we're good. It's not like society radically changed, you know, from one year to the next, Um, no matter even though they might be trying to radically change society from one year to the next. But um, so, you know, it is unfortunate. I know that there are some members of the, the left, the traditional, like real left that are kind of better on this. But have you actually had any success with Democrats? So when the rubber actually hits the road are there any democrats who are good on medical freedom anti-mandate um COVID tyranny in general
2: um i wouldn't say good is not the word mm-hmm. i think last year um we really witnessed the shift of the legislators um from the first couple times we went up to the capitol to oppose sb 866 Um, We got a lot of cold shoulders. They were not used to people really walking around and trying to engage with them. They're trying to figure out who we are, what we wanted. Um, But, you know, we remained respectful and we remained consistent. And although um, I don't think we're going to see a huge shift from Democrats voting party lines, I do think last year we were able to experience a shift in them at least giving us an opportunity to kind of hear our points out. Um, and it did make some of them second guess just moving forward, voting party lines, no question asked. And I think that is actually how we defeated that bill was we did get through to to quite a few Democratic representatives who who kind of started to question, you know, do the risks outweigh the benefits? And, and what is the necessity of, you know, SB 866? So although I don't yes. think they're going to just jump party lines to vote, Uh, I do think we did witness a shift in them at least being reasonable and listening to us and respecting us.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, I talked about this quite a bit, you know, last year, or at least in a handful of episodes, but I think it bears repeating that there are, yes, tons of Democrats in the state legislature, but a lot of these Democrats come from the Central Valley. There are still Democrats elected from the Valley. There are still Democrats elected from Orange County, believe it or not. Um, in the suburbs of San Diego. So places that are typically more um, normal, or I I don't want to say conservative, but just kind of maybe more traditionalist, right? And and maybe with some populist leanings. I think in a lot of those districts, that's where we can actually have more of an impact. When there is maybe a Democrat state legislator, whether it's a senator or an assembly man, assembly woman, whatever, in those more contested districts, we were able to, to speak with some of their offices and if nothing else, just leave phone calls and leave messages that I think actually do matter. You know, all these legislators talk about if they get inundated with 20, 30, 40 calls in a day, that's actually a big deal. And it seems like, you know, all I did was call and leave a message, but even that little bit of activism, which I know we were all doing last year quite a bit, um, even that really does quite a bit in terms of just telling the legislator that we're paying attention, right? That we're not asleep at the wheel.
0: Yes. And we don't even have to be calling our own legislators. We can also call others. I've called every single assembly member and senator last year about SV 866. And you awesome. can call after hours and leave a message. You don't have to call and talk to people. And you can right. still get your voice and your message heard.
2: Yeah, and although they're elected to represent their local constituents, they're elected to represent all Californians. They sit on committees which Mm -hmm. represent all Californians, so it's more than appropriate to reach out to them. Um, But I wanted to kind of mention, it is so, so important, even if you think it doesn't matter, to call and to voice your opinion, not only to put your opinion out there, but there are so many bills that they don't even know what what a quarter of them actually are. They wait for a quick briefing and then they take a vote depending on what their staffers tell them that day. I mean, last year we encountered so many representatives who we educated on SB 866. They didn't even know what the bill content was at all. We educated them and then they had some questions. And so the next time we engaged with them, we brought them resources. So not only is it important to give your opinion, but sometimes you are bringing these bills to their attention for the first time. Otherwise, they would have just voted party lines. So, yes, call your assembly member and senator every single time.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing statement. Actually, isn't that horrifying? We're supposed to live in this, you know, republic where these people go up and they represent our values, and. Yet it might be um, just citizen activists who are bringing this stuff to their attention for the first time. Otherwise, they would just sign off on the bill or push it through committee or whatever. To me, that, that's horrifying. Um, so looking ahead at what we're facing, I mean, I know there's been some good news. A lot of people have been celebrating this California Department of Public Health announcement um, you know, recently, not too long ago at all. They were talking about not pursuing or not putting into effect the uh, vaccine mandate for the COVID-19 vaccine specifically. And I know that's a reason to celebrate. That's good news and everything that they're not going to push it through kind of through the bureaucratic state or administratively. However, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but it's not me. It's I think a lot of us are saying that's great. The CDPH is not going to push, push it on us, you know, through... Uh, through diktat or through uh, administrative law or bureaucracy, but what could be coming at us through the legislature? And I've kind of looked, I've done some quick keyword searches. I haven't found anything yet that I'm, that I'm aware of and correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't found anything that actually is pushing through the COVID shots, these injections, and I'm not gonna call them vaccines necessarily or put them in scare quotes, but I haven't found anything yet that's installing a mandate via legislation. Am I right on that? Or have have you guys dug anything up um, that's been introduced to date in the first month or so? Um,
0: No, so far you're correct. I've looked up like keywords like you did, vaccination, immunization, vaccines, uh, mandates, masks, to try to see like, what are we going to be faced with this session? And so far there's nothing. But just because there's nothing right now I I'm not celebrating it. I still think that um there might be bills that it's will be not pushed. It's over yeah. till it's over. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a lot of right. very vague bills that could be gotten amended and so those are what I'm trying to watch as well. Because those ones that are very big usually are gotten amended right before the yeah. very end. The
2: more extreme bills, they right. kind of tend to hold on to the last minute and just like, oh, maybe people won't realize if we put this out the last day or try to gut and amend it the last day. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have no doubt that they'll be coming for our kids. <laughs> and, yeah. and as in regards to sh- shots as well as yeah. other things, um, I want to back up a little bit too. I do not, um, even with CDPHs, you know. Not statement, but communications about not pushing um, this shot onto the childhood schedule for, for schools. I still don't trust that. Um, even if they came out with a statement and said that they weren't doing it, I still don't trust that they're not trying to, you know, get it through a non-emergency way or um there's just no trust in either the CDPH yeah. or our legislature to be pushing these things. I think they've gone so hard on them for so long that clearly they're not just going based off of science. And I I don't think they're going to start doing yeah. that now. It kind of feels
0: like waiting so, for the other chute to drop. Yep.
1: Oh, it totally does. I totally agree. Let me ask both of you, and, and Corinne, maybe you want to speak to this first, but Courtney, jump in as well. And this is just an open dialogue, an open discussion that I have with people. But why, why are they so obsessed with giving children these gene therapy treatments, these injections that have been scientifically proven to increase the risk of myocarditis, pericarditis, heart inflammation, um, in some cases, alter females, uh, monthly cycles and possibly fertility. This is all scientific research, right? Mm-hmm. And all these other things that we've seen scientifically that have kind of finally made their way into the literature, which is how we do science, Mm -hmm. by putting out peer-reviewed work, peer-reviewed papers. So why is there still this obsession with forcing just about every child and every person in the state to take these injections? What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think they sold their soul. (laughs) I think at this point- To
1: Pfizer or Moderna? Yeah,
2: I think they sold their soul. There is nothing from a scientific world, from a nursing world that has ever made sense. I mean, I've read the articles myself when they told me things were safe and effective. Nothing said it was safe or effective. Um, We have pulled these articles and we've taken them to our board of supervisors meeting. That was one of the ways we were able to end our local state of emergency March of last year was to bring these real documents to our elected officials and show them everything they've told you and are telling you isn't actually true. This is the science. Um, So I don't I don't know why I, I think it's too late for any of them to kind of backtrack um, because they've already sold their souls to the devil.
0: And I agree mm-hmm. with 100%. And I also think that it is trying to break up the family unit. Mm-hmm. And that's a big reason why they do it. If they can break up the family unit, then they can control everyone. Because if you don't have yeah, 100%. and you don't have that strong unit to help give you guidance and keep you know your head on straight, then they can do whatever they want and make us take whatever they want and things like that.
1: So in other words, to insert the state in between mom and dad or the the normal family unit of society Absolutely. for thousands of years, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's it's incredible too because, um, yeah, as you said, I, I think they are almost too dug in at this point. And I'm not sure how much of it is just good old-fashioned corruption like legislators who were on the take from Pfizer um, and Moderna to a lesser extent. I'm not sure how much of it is that versus just saving face because they, they bought in to the lies. And in some cases, politicians helped push the lies. Uh, it was very destructive. I'm thinking even like um, Dr. Richard Pan, right? Who's now termed out. Thank God he's out of Sacramento. Who knows what he's going to do next. But um, some of them helped really push things that we know were untrue. I, I remember when the injections were first coming out, I think it was Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna were both reporting effectiveness rates of 94 and 95%, literally. And then from month to month, that effectiveness rate that they had to report, or they did report, it kept kind of dropping. And then the media was talking about it less and less. They stopped talking about it. And um, as the months went on, it was just Oh yeah, we never said that. Uh, we never said that COVID would be prevented; that you wouldn't get it. We just said it would be uh, mitigated. Or we never said it would stop the spread. And what they said kept evolving, even though the whole time they were essentially pushing mandates. Um, so I, I think about these things, and you know, it's just incredible that there is such devotion to these worthless and even dangerous injections. I mean, they've been proven to be dangerous.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah, but some of these people like Senator Pan who push them, um, I have to remind myself, so I work with doctors all the time, and I remind myself that doctors are trained to provide medical services, whereas nurses and moms are trained to look at the person as a whole and kind of deal with them holistically. Um, so I think I've been most taken back by some of the doctors who do do come at this so hard and and don't really want to read the science. They just trust the science. Um, And I, and I just wanted to let you know that Senator Pan isn't really, although he's termed out, he's now working with the the medical board. So that's
1: okay. So he's back in a way. He's
2: not going anywhere and nor is his plans to try to vaccinate every child in California.
1: Yeah. Well, he's going to, he's going to fail. I think what they're going to realize, and they have realized it that, there is a there's a hard wall essentially a hard wall of approximately 20% of the population where we've told them no personally i mean my no they will never force me into medical treatments or injections for me or my family they will never do it it's a hard no from me and i i know from a lot of my friends and you know fellow patriots and activists there is a hard no on these injections, and I think they won't leave well enough alone and just say, hey, we've got 80%. I think right now what they're saying is we've got our 20% that we need to work on, and you people are hard-headed, and we're going to we're going to control you. You're going to submit, and it's going to be very interesting as we proceed through these legislative sessions and whatnot, because we are not going to relent. Well,
2: and I, and I think they've met that line they know now. Um, A lot of these COVID policies have identified for a lot of us what our bottom line is. But when you start talking about pushing that bottom line onto our children, we're not just going to talk about it anymore. We're going to show up.
1: Well, that's right. And um, they're not just going to stop with the, the COVID injections. They are going to use this mRNA technology for everything. I mean, we've seen even RSV. We've seen a number of other respiratory viruses, which it just it drives me nuts because you don't treat a respiratory virus with, um, with these kinds of, uh, well, vaccines or injections, whatever you want to call them. And actually, the science, I don't know if you've seen this recent paper, um, either of you, it just came out in Cell, which is one of the leading biology journals. It was actually co-authored by Fauci and a few other people. And they basically come out and they're admitting that using using these types of injections or vaccines against common respiratory viruses like COVID and others, they said, yeah, it's, this is not effective. We're going to have to look at um, next generation treatments because what we've done is not effective. And honestly, these injections now, these vaccines so-called, would not even receive approval in trials. So it's amazing. It's like they let the steam out a little bit at a time and the truth rolls out bit by bit. Have you seen this um, this new journal that's kind of trickling out? I think um, Robert Malone or others have, have linked to it on their sub stacks.
2: You know what? I, I've seen pieces of it. Um, and it just kind of supports the fact that we are not going to trust the CDC or the government any longer. And, and that's a really sad thing for me as a nurse, um, going through nursing school and all these things. The CDC was like the standard of care and who I trusted for my resources. That's just not going to be the case anymore because of things like this.
1: Yeah, Uh, that is sad. But I think a lot of us have kind of um, come to that realization that there's no trusting the CDC. I want to abolish the FDA. I'd abolish the CDC, too, because I don't need to be paying billions and billions for them to uh, play around with gain of function research in foreign countries and set up bio labs and fund them in Ukraine. and, And all this is supposed to be a conspiracy theory, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I think people like me and perhaps yourselves can just, you know, read the writing on the wall. We can just kind of see the facts as they are. So as we, uh, we take a look at maybe some of the specific bills that are starting to emerge uh, since January, here we are in February, um, are there any interesting or scary or horrific bills that, that either of you have seen? Um, anything that we should take note of or we should be watching as, it, uh, as they come through?
0: So I have a couple here. Um, EB-7 is by Laura Friedman out of the 44th District, and it's called a Transportation and Funding Bill. And it it says this bill would enact subsequent legislation that would eliminate single occupancy vehicle freeway capacity projects and allow capacity projects only for bus rapid transit, rail, active transportation purposes, Projects that significantly add safety and projects that significantly reduce congestion without interfering with existing maintenance and rehabilitation needs. So in layman's terms, that means like no more road work for single vehicle people, for single vehicle cars. So, you know, road to me, I mean, I could be wrong, but that means like no more road work on freeways because a lot of that is just people going back and forth. It's not community transportation. And so that that kind of signals to me that that's not okay. Like we have a lot of bad roads in this state. We have horrible infrastructure. So why would we not make it right? Why would we not try and fix them?
2: Well, and I think it just kind of shows you like their focus isn't necessarily on the individual or the constituents of California, but more of like the business, um,
0: the the business part of it. The um, more communal projects yeah. of trying to get everyone to – not drive your car, to only take buses, to only take trains and things like that. And then, um, I have EB 245 by Tina McKinner, head of the 61st district. And that one is, that one is kind of a hard one to decide, like, yeah, we're not against it, but we're not for it because it makes requirements for high school coaches and trainers to now be, um, they have to be trained in the signs and symptoms of cardiac arrest. Why all of a sudden? We know that the vaccine has caused cardiac arrest in myocarditis and pericarditis in young individuals. And so that's why it's concerning for me. But I do see it also as a good bill because if we're going to have players having heart attacks and cardiac arrest, then yeah, we do need people to be on the lookout for that but we shouldn't be normalizing it. We shouldn't be just like, oh yeah, cardiac arrest, who cares? No, that's, that's why it's concerning for me.
2: Yeah, I agree. Normalizing things like that through our legislature. Um, but it, it is a slippery slope though, because unfortunately I think we do need these things on campus, although we don't want to need them.
0: Yeah. Um, SB 88 is by Nancy Skinner and she's in the ninth district. And that's a people transportation bill. And that one is very concerning to me because it would codify existing regulations and rules that currently govern who can provide people transportation and what type of vehicles they can drive. And I'm sure that they're going to try and say that it's for like high gas prices and they're going to allow teachers and parents to take students to field trips and things like that. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that, you know, teachers or Anyone else, administrators cannot take children home or anything like that. So for me, that's where it's concerning because I have family members that drive bus for schools and they do an extremely rigorous background check. They're in a database with the DOJ and it checks like every single country there is. It's the like highest, strictest one they could do. They have to do 20 hours of instruction in the classroom, 20 hours behind the wheel driving they take a written test every five years which is 45 questions and they can only miss five or they fail and then they do a drug and alcohol testing very frequently and um, if they pass everything then they do a behind the wheel test with chp kind of like we do for permits how you have to show that you know how to drive it you know how all the operations work like the blinkers and how to open the emergency exit door and things like that so For them to try and let anyone just take kids like that's very concerning because you don't have to have a background check to in this bill. It doesn't say like, oh, you have to pass a background check or anything like that. I I see that they probably are trying to do something good with it, but it just does not seem good at all to me.
1: Yeah, I I almost look at every single new law skeptically. I I hate to be such a cynic, but I'm a cynic. You know, what can I say?
2: And I think we see like the intent of some of these bills as being good, but historically, California just misses the mark in our opinion. So we kind of look at them the same way as you. Yeah.
1: And we've got plenty of laws already, right? I'd like to get rid of 90% of our laws. and, um, And there are a few COVID ones that I had found, COVID related ones. I'm sure there are tons, but. Um, Have you heard of this AB 408, which I guess would establish a bond and spending package for the so-called climate crisis and for COVID-19 recovery? Um, So that one to me is scary because it's going to get us into more debt, more spending, um, chasing the COVID-19 recovery, which is like, okay, aren't we recovered yet? But um, so that's going to spend more taxpayer dollars. And
2: Well, and we're already in a deficit, so I'm not sure where that money is going to come from. Well, that's
1: right. And we're losing, we are losing taxpayers. Um, Everyone's familiar Mm -hmm. with our our net loss of residents and taxpayers to other states, such as Texas, Idaho, Arizona. And that's right. Our tax base is going to be shrinking. We're in a deficit, but go ahead, you know, keep, keep spending money, right? Like there's no tomorrow. The other scary one, (laughs) go ahead.
0: Yeah. I said it's not their money; they're spending, it's our money, so they're yeah. okay
1: with it. I guess the only good news, um, relatively good news, is that they can't print dollars like the, uh, the feds can to finance this insanity. But there was also AB 269. I don't know if, if either of you had seen this one. Apparently, it's going to expand locations where COVID therapeutics and medicines can be dispensed. And I think they're going to essentially just kind of liberalize that whole process And so I don't know the details on that one, but I think where it's going is essentially we can let any pharmacist, we can let almost any retailer, perhaps, I'm not sure about this, but anyone can dispense therapeutic medicines. It doesn't have to be your doctor or nurse, healthcare professional in a clinical setting. It could be a retail setting. And I think it it continues more of that, the COVID um, injection, just insanity of, you know, just. Completely taking away, like you you don't have to look at someone's medical history. You don't have to do an exam on the patient. Just give them medicines, give them therapeutics. Uh, God forbid if uh, remdesivir, I don't think that would be dispensed this way. But I'm wondering what therapeutics they're talking about. Would that be like Paxlovid maybe?
2: Yeah, I'm guessing they're talking about like the Paxlovid and things. Um, we actually here in Stanislaus have test and treat sites. So you can go get tested for COVID and get your prescription right there. Um, which is essentially kind of the same thing you're re- referring to for 269. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. No history, nobody who has any experience with pharmacologics and how medications work together adversely and cause problems. Um, but I mean, it's kind of moving closer to that that Kaiser model. And I, and I talk about this all the time. Um, as a nurse, I feel like we are in a transition from health care to health services, hmm. we are not going to have a system where we are caring for people um, spiritually, physically, mentally. Uh, we are transitioning in, into what I call providing health services. It'll be here's your here's your medications, or, or even kind of like Kaiser does. I've heard Kaiser, um, you can call them, kind of tell them what symptoms you're having, and they take a guess at what you have going on, and then they'll, they'll tell you, well, we have these, you know, couple antibiotics. For you to choose from, yeah. That that is not how healthcare works. No, and there's trained professionals who need to assess the person holistically and prescribe appropriately. But we are moving. We're, we're really moving away from that care aspect and just to services and, and to see legislation come through like this. Just kind of confirms my thoughts that that's where we're going with healthcare. Unfortunately,
1: I think we're headed to a scary place, and I, I have huge problems with the Kaiser model. And I'm the opposite. I'm the farthest opposite of a socialist you can find. I, I think there should be almost no licensing or regulation. But when I look at when I look at what Kaiser does, and essentially they are a huge corporation, regardless of what they call themselves, they are a corporation that basically they contract doctors. I guess they don't employ doctors um, okay. directly, but they get around it by contracting like a group of physicians that work for Kaiser, and then they have these doctors and healthcare providers. Who have a conflict of interest built in they they are working they're contracting for this company which wants to minimize its expenditures on your health yet you have a patient who's saying well I, I want this test or i want this treatment and everything goes through that bottom line that dollar mentality through their corporation because the doctors i don't care what they say the doctors are working for them or contracting for them it's a huge problem in in healthcare.
2: No, it's a huge problem. And then they have some type of an emergency order and then they don't allow families to be next to the bedsides of these patients. And so now they have nobody advocating for them. It's it's not safe. It's a scary, scary system.
1: Yeah, it is. And I'm just shocked going back to stuff like AB 269. I've been shocked in the past three years at how quickly they just wave their magic wand and get rid of all these former requirements, all the former red tape that we could never get through. You know, they won't let someone um, try experimental chemotherapy or a new cancer drug half the time. You know, there's there's some big hurdle. You can't choose your own treatment, um, the right to try, you know, and, and such. Uh, you've got the right to die, but not the right to try. It's incredible how many bits and pieces of red tape and obstacles people who are suffering had to go through in the past. But yet when COVID came along, they waived all the bureaucracy, all the red tape, and they started letting, you know, stalkers um, and bus boy—well, not bus boys, but cashiers in a CVS administer uh, injections. Um, almost, maybe not quite, but well, you could walk into a, a pharmacy, right, and just get demand medical treatment. They don't even know your history.
2: Yeah, and we have so many elected officials giving medical advice these yes. days, and I constantly am asking about scope of practice, like what are these elected officials' scope of practice? Yes. I don't think a lot of these things should fall within the laws and legislature that they're allowed to create.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's rather, rather scary, uh, the way the rules have been bent, twisted, and, um, you know, why is the question. You know, someone on the take. Um, I had also seen that there's this AB28, you know, shifting gears just a little bit, a gun violence prevention tax
0: that's Gabriel. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: There's has, a lot of those bills this time. Yeah. Okay. He has a lot of those that are very concerning for me. Okay. AB 28, AB 29, AB 36. They're all firearm bills okay. from Gabriel that are concerning.
1: And Gabriel is, um, who is that person? Where, where is that person from? He
0: is uh, Jesse Gabriel. Jesse. I don't He's an assembly
2: member. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of firearm bills this session. Yeah. Um, I know Take a Stand doesn't have really too many resources or the capacity to deal with many of them, but we do work with other organizations, which this is like their specialty, these gun ones. Um, but we kind of help identify them, and we definitely give our position on them and um, let our position be known. But okay. in general, um, Jesse Gabriel tends to be one of the more progressive and not as willing to kind of hear what you have to say as as a Californian
1: Okay, so we're going to have to look out for, looks like a whole slew of those different um, gun bills. Yes, there
0: us. are quite a few firearm bills. Oh yeah. boy. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and I know Firearms Policy Coalition does really, really good work. Um, typically, sometimes they pick up some California stuff. Gun owners of America or California is, is good too. Yeah.
0: Another one that is also very, very concerning is ACA 4 by Isaac Bryan out of the 55th district. And it's about our elections. This bill would repeal the disqualification of um, like, if you're in prison, whether it's state or federal, now you would be able to vote. It doesn't matter what you did. Um, it says this bill would repeal the disqualification of electors while serving a state or federal prison term for the conviction of a felony. So not even like misdemeanors or things that are you know, not so bad. But felonies, the only requirements now would be that you are a U.S. citizen, you're 18 years old, and you're a California resident. Other than that, you're more than welcome to vote. And that's it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like you commit a felony. You've you've lost that right. Um, yeah. Not that I'm opposed to allowing people to join some type of rehabilitation program and really trying to turn their life around and find out. Um, how they can better incorporate themselves into the community. I I do think that that would be a decent opportunity for them, but that's not what we're talking about here in this bill. We're talking about every single felon having the right to vote. Yes.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, a lot of legislation, um, a lot of legislation we need to keep our eyes on for sure. Um, And one one last one that I saw, I don't know if this was on your guys' radar, but there's Senate Concurrent Resolution 15, Stand Against Hate Action Day, which to me is strange because I don't know who's pro hate, but I guess they're they've really carved out a position on hate. They're they're against hate, which is very brave of them.
0: They have a couple um, hate crime bills, which include like name calling and insults, and that's just concerning because what I may think may be mean or you know hate, Craig might not think. And so that's, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of, yes, to, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sorry, I, I don't support
2: hate by any means, but no. I do think you are allowed to be a little hateful at times if something is really bothering you. I don't feel like that is something that our legislature has to control, but I do think this is the angle they're going to take right now. I think the shots and those things have kind of lost a lot of the steam that they had before, so um, the new angle is kind of like, Um, being nice to everybody and not letting people feel like you hate them. We got to protect everybody's feelings feelings and things like that, which, which believe me, I'm all about making people feel good. But at the same time, like we can be big, big boys and girls here and kind of deal with our emotions and our, and each other's
0: words appropriately. And my question is like, what, what would be a hate crime? It says insults and name calling. Okay. So me calling a biological man, a male, regardless if he's dressed up in women's clothes or not, is that a hate crime then? Would I go to jail for that? Would I lose, you know, my rights because I'm not going to. Well, these vague bills, that's why these vague bills concern us is because
2: they leave so much room for interpretation. And we know how California tends to interpret these
1: things. Oh yeah. And, and personally, the reason why I'm against any and all hate crime bills is because what they really are are thought crime bills um, Absolutely. And it's you can have any opinion you want to. Um, we can think someone is an awful, terrible, prejudiced bigot or a hateful, mean person, and um, they might be. You know, some of those groups or those people might be very reprehensible, awful people. But it's not illegal to have a rude thought or to have a mean thought. At the end of the day, what's illegal is assaulting someone, right, or yes. punching someone or hurting someone in a physical way, stealing their property. That's what's illegal. No matter if. The person's mean or if they're hateful or if they're the nicest person on earth it's like what is it a consolation that you were uh you were assaulted or beaten by someone who has good thoughts in their heart versus a hateful person i, I just I, I detest this this line of thinking because i think it gets into thought crime status and with ai coming at us there's going to be a lot more of this uh this type of garbage and they're going to try to root it out with an algorithm um, and, and so forth. I think it gets into scary territory.
2: Definitely. Yeah.
1: Um, okay, well, we're we're up against time here. Um, I was gonna ask you one one last thing. I mean, we've covered a lot of topics, but what are your thoughts with? I know we're, we're, we can talk about national stuff, but we've got we've got Gavin or News, Gavin Newsom, our, our governor, who is talking about, well, not talking about running. Could we see a Newsom versus California California's own Kamala Harris primary coming at us in 2024? And what kind of a disaster might that be?
2: I mean, just those two names in one <laughs> sentence sounds like a disaster. There's a leading question. Yeah, that sounds like a disaster to me. Um, you know, I, I think we can see it. I don't think he's humble enough to stick around California and try to make Uh, good on his promises. He hasn't done it this far into his governorship. I don't think he's going to start now. Um, I do think he's always looking for what's bigger and better and willing to just leave what he had behind. Um, I do think a Kamala versus Newsom is a potential for
0: our future. Um, All I can say is people are fleeing California because they cannot stand the guy. So why would anyone want him for president? Nobody wants that. It's,
1: yeah, nobody's it's interesting, right. though,
2: because a lot of people have left California, typically conservatives. Um, and then he's actually less favorable now in this election than he was last, even with the amount of Californians leaving. Um, the one thing on our side is the people who are leaving California and, and dispersing themselves throughout the United States um, generally don't favor him. And, and I feel like our current presidential administration has the pendulum swinging so 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 far one way um and then if you just kind of look historically at how politics go I-, I do think it's inevitable it kind of swings back so maybe having those two villains kamala and newsom will work in our favor
1: yeah it might be good uh, maybe they could kind of um end each of their careers mutually somehow <laughs> that would, yeah. that would be my uh, my show. dream scenario the yeah. problem is we'll that i better. that i can see is Okay, you know, we can talk about this this national stuff. Does Newsom want to run? Is he going to run? I and mean, that's kind of fun and interesting. But back here locally in California, who is it that's coming up on the bench? That's, I think, the horrifying thing. Who is next for the Democrats that they're going to push upon us for governor of this state? Because governor really matters, especially in California. That's what keeps me up at night.
2: Well, I, I think our lieutenant governor is not far behind Newsom on... Um, same goals and kind of pushing people to achieve their goals regardless of, um, what they're trying to achieve themselves.
1: Yeah. So this governor thing is going to be uh, kind of scary to watch the presidency. That'll be kind of fun, funny to watch, but it really matters what happens here in our state. And I don't know if it'll be the Lieutenant governor or, or who it is going to be. Some people were talking about Richard Pan, uh, perish the thought, you know, or someone like that, trying to make a run at things. God forbid, like a Senator Scott Wiener, um, start start getting interested in the governorship luckily that's still a few few years away um, but I guess it's gonna be in the back of my mind this is something to worry about um, at any rate I, I really appreciate uh, both of your time today I know there's a lot more we could talk about we could jump into more bills um, but thank you for being here with us anything anything that you want to mention that um, should people check out your website or social media? What do you want to uh, plug as far as sending people your way?
2: Yeah, org. If you go to that website, it has a lot of our resources there and a lot of things that we've done locally. Um, you can take a look at what we've done and try to replicate that in your area locally. Um, there's also a link to um, contact us email, which is takeastandstanislaus at gmail.com. And then we can give you just some inside tips of how we were able to be successful in ending our local state of emergency um, and just different kind of things locally. Um, But most importantly, go to Mm findyourrep.ca.gov and find your assembly member, find your senator, start calling their offices and asking to just schedule meetings with them. You don't have to have anything in particular um, that you want to address. You can simply get a meeting with their office and just tell them the things that concern you and the things that you want to see supported um, locally. Start to build that relationship now. The best case scenario is that you've built a relationship with them and it gets to a point where they know your intentions. um, And when an issue does come up, they are willing to open that door and listen to you. Um, otherwise, just focus focus on your local representatives, your board of supervisors, your school board members, um, city council. City council. There's a lot of different things you can do locally. A lot of our take a stand members are joining um, school boards. We're on behavioral county health boards. There's city a boards. lot of opportunities. Um, but check out Take a Stand Stanislaus. It's S-T-A-N-I-S-L-A-U-S um, dot org. And you, we have a lot of resources
0: there.
1: Awesome. Courtney, any, any parting words before we uh, wrap up?
0: Um, if anyone wants help looking at bills or anything like that, my Instagram is Courtney in California. And so it's really easy to find. So I... Perfect. Um, I can help with any bills or anything any questions i helped people with like voting last year so i'm an open book if people have any questions i'm more than happy to answer yeah.
2: and take a stand has a instagram facebook mm-hmm. twitter we do lots of calls to action and um, we have a link tree on there which can basically get you to anything that we talked about today Um, And then there's lots of, lots of organizations that we follow who provide amazing resources as well. So just hopping on our social medias and checking out our friends is is great too.
1: Cool. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of work to do. And uh, I really applaud uh, both of you and the organization, Take a Stand Stanislaus, for getting active and um, being a leader. You know, we need a lot of leaders and foot soldiers in this uh, struggle. And um, I think you've done great work. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today.
0: Well, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure being on. Thank
1: you. Awesome. Thanks so much. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe,
0: share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.